steadfast, unshakable love for us that never changes. No matter our performance, no matter our goodness, Lord, your love for us remains the same. Thank you, Jesus, that you are not only full of grace, but you are king forever, that you are Lord, that you are master, that you rule and you reign and that you will return. And so, Father, we come to reorient our hearts towards you this morning. We come to to exalt your name and to, to bow at your feet and to say, here is our lives. Would you use us for your glory? And so, Father, as we come to the word which you have inspired for us, that you have sent to us now, would you give us open hearts to receive from you today? Lord, that you would change our hearts, that you would challenge our assumptions, that you would um, move into the desires and into the motivations of our hearts so that, Lord, we would be different, so that we would look like Jesus more and more. So come and have your way, Holy Spirit. For we pray in the name of Jesus, the Lord. Amen. Please have a seat. It's my privilege to welcome you here. My name is Kevin. If you're a visitor with us, please know that you are very welcome here to to worship with us. Um, Just by way of explanation of what's going on this morning, we gather here uh, every week to uh, worship the name of Jesus. We want to center our lives and center our gatherings on the person of Jesus and who he is and all that he has accomplished for us. We uh, are going to spend some time in the scriptures that we believe reveal to us Jesus. Um, after this, we're going to spend a couple of moments connecting with one another. We're going to gather the kids from the kids' wing. We bring them all together, and we'll sing some more and respond and worship to our great God together. So um, if you have a Bible, if you didn't bring one with you, there is one in the, the pews. It's red. You can't miss it. I'll invite you to turn to John chapter 3. As a church family, we've been working our way through this gospel of John which is a biography of Jesus telling the story of Jesus and um, pointing to his significance, pointing to all that he has done and all that he's accomplished. And we're going to finish off John chapter 3 today. So I invite you to turn John 3 verse 22. And this comes right after Jesus, um, his famous uh, interaction with the religious leader Nicodemus which includes John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. So we talked about that the last couple of weeks, that interaction that um, Jesus has with Nicodemus. John chapter 3, verse 22, to the end of the chapter. After this, that's after talking to Nicodemus, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now, John was also baptizing. That's not John the author, John the Baptist. John was also baptizing at Anon near Salem because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man, this is referring to Jesus, That man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he's baptizing, and everyone's going to him. To this, John replied, a man can only receive, can receive only what is given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy of mine, that that joy is mine and it is now complete. 
He must become greater. I must become less. Now, verse 31 to the end, most scholars, commentators believe that there shouldn't be quotation marks, that this is no longer John the Baptist speaking, but John the author. Greek uh, literature doesn't have quotation marks. So some believe, like the NIV version here that we read, that this is still in quotes. This is John speaking. Others believe this is John the author giving some commentary. Doesn't really matter. But verse 31 to the end. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. This is the word of God. I don't know if you have ever seen uh, on the internet these uh, series of videos that are called I Am Second. These I Am Second videos. It, they look like this. Uh, Elizabeth, you put, a, put that picture up on the screen. Um, for 10 bucks in a trip to Thorold, uh, does anyone know who that is? R.A. Dickey, right? So I, 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 picked, uh, I picked my favorite Blue Jay, or I picked the only Blue Jay on the, uh, the website. But they look like this. They all look like this black background, um, someone relatively famous sitting in a white chair, and they're sharing their story. And the, the story is all about how uh, they are second. I am second. They, they conclude each of the videos like Ari would conclude, my name's Ari, I am Ari Dickey, and I am second. And there's, there's athletes, and there's uh, celebrities, there's um, NASCAR drivers, there's, because this started out of Dallas, so it's kind of skewed towards things like NASCAR. And, um, there's some pastors, um, and they're all, and, and, and there's some regular people who are all sharing their story about how living for Jesus has transformed their lives. How recognizing the fact that they are second has been um, incredibly transforming to how they live their life and how they see their lives. And so there's stories of addiction and stories of selfishness. There's stories of crime. There's stories of, of pride and how coming to realize that they are second actually transforms their life. Ari Dickey tells a story of, of childhood abuse. Um, we don't need to look at Ari anymore. Maybe they can go back. But um, it's all about how living for Jesus and putting Jesus first and recognizing that actually I am second makes such a difference in their life. This is what John the Baptist is showing us, that if we are second, then we first of all need to be sure who's first. And when you know who Jesus is, then you are free to know who you are not. When you know who Jesus is, you're free to know who you are not, and therefore who you are, and you are free to say, I am second. So it begins that Jesus' disciples went out to Judean countryside, so they were leaving Jerusalem. 
we were spending time with them and baptized some people. We read in chapter 4, it's actually Jesus' disciples baptizing people uh, on behalf uh, of them. And they're proclaiming the message of the coming of the kingdom of God. They're announcing this, right? The baptism of John is all about announcing the coming, the incarnation of Jesus. In verse 25, that an argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew. Now, these are all Jews, so this is certainly... Uh, referring to a Jewish leader of some sort about o- over the matter of ceremonial washing. They come to John the Baptist and say to him, Rabbi, that man who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, John's like, Jesus? He's like, yeah, yeah, the one you testified about. Well, he's baptizing and everyone is going to him. And what John's disciples are saying to John really are, is like, John, are you the real deal here? Because now everyone's not coming to you now. You were the one. You were the hot ticket preacher. Everyone was coming to see you and to hear what you had to say and to see what you were doing. Now they're going to him. They're not coming over to our team anymore. So the disciples of John had been, you know, following the newest hippest thing, the newest teacher on the block. And their importance is now diminishing because John's ministry is shrinking so john's disciples are feeling jealous they're feeling um they're feeling like they're they're threatened that their importance is threatened because it will diminish when john's ministry shrinks but john knew his call right he says he knows why he was sent john says you know i know who i'm not i've told you over and over again i am not the christ but i've been sent ahead of him I've been, co- I've been called to prepare the way of the Lord. We've seen this in John chapter 1, verse 22. John the Baptist says there, he says, um, people came and said, who are you? Give us an answer, who you are, who sent you? What do you say about yourself? And John replied uh, in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert, make straight the way of the Lord. He says, I am, not the, I am the one who's not worthy to untie the sandals of one who's coming after me. I'm not even worthy to perform a slave's task for one who's following behind me. He says, I am not the Christ. I am not the one. I am not the point. It's not about me. I know who I am not. So John tells them who he is and what he's been called to. I've just been called to, to you know, I'm the demolition crew. You know, sometimes we're seeing this in town a little bit now that, you know, People are buying up old houses, and what they do is they're, they're, demo, they're, they're ripping them down to prepare the way for something new and bigger, better, and newer. And so John's like, I'm the demo crew. I've come to, to tear away the old house to prepare the foundation for the new home. I am not the light. I am not the Christ. I am not worthy unto, to even untie his sandals, John continues to say. John says, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I'm not the Christ, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greatest. I must become less. He says, I'm not the drink. I'm just the best man. So I want us to see three things that I think we can learn from John the baptizer here. 
this morning. And the first is this, is that grace destroys entitlement. Grace destroys entitlement. See, John's disciples are upset that John is following this completion, which is entitlement. They feel like, hey, we were early adopters. We were one of the first ones to follow you. We want to be the one, like we were here before you were popular, and we want your, uh, and we're in your inner circle, and so we want you to have this great following so that we can feel important. We feel like we deserve some sort of special treatment. You see, crouching right near entitlement is always pride, and pride and grace cannot coexist. Pride and grace cannot coexist. Entitlement and grace cannot coexist. When we talk about the grace of God, we're talking about the grace of the gospel. Like, what do we deserve? What do we deserve? Not much. You think about your rebellion against God, your need to, 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 to turn away from him. What do you deserve? You don't deserve much. But what do you inherit in Christ? He took what you deserved and gives you what he deserves. He, he deserves life. But took death so that we could have life. You see, John knew that his life and his ministry were not meant to be clung on to, be, to cling to as though he deserved them. And so he lays it all down. You see, entitlement is murderous to your soul. Entitlement is murderous to your soul. John says a man can, o- can receive only what is given him by God. A man can receive only what everything is a gift. What do you have that you have not received from the giver? What do you have in your life that's not a gift? Everything in your life is a gift. But entitlement, this feeling like you deserve special treatment, will crush you. Because what you do is you put God in a position where you can demand more from him and expect less. When we start to feel like, like um, the things that we have in our life is actually our doing, when we become proud about the things that we've accomplished, the things that we have in our life, we become entitled to them. And grace and entitlement, grace and pride cannot coexist. When you think about your family, you say, well, actually, you know, I've, I've brought up that family. I was such a good father. I was such a good mother. That's why they're here. If you think about your, your business, maybe some of you are, um, own your own business. And you're like, I started this thing. I built it. I worked hard. I sacrificed. I, w- I made good decisions. And it becomes yours. You become proud become entitled when you think about your money when you think about the opportunities when you think about your intellect what do you have what have you received that's not a gift a man can only receive that which is given him from heaven john the baptist said to us but if you rightly understand god's grace you understand that everything you have is a gift that everything you have is a gift see it's a subtle shift in perspective that actually has massive changes in our lives 
says, no, to understand and to believe and live as though everything in your life, every good thing in your life is a gift from heaven. It's all a gift. Your life, your ministry, your relationships, the fact that you're walking with Jesus, your work, your business, whatever it is, is a gift from God's hand. You have not yet had Christ. So if you think about what you have in Christ, rather than what you lack because of time's finite, which leads us to the second thing I'd like us to see from John the Baptist, is that comparison will steal your joy. Comparison is the thief of joy. Comparison steals your joy. Comparison and entitlement work together. Comparison and entitlement work together. Verse 28, you yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ and have sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens to him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it's now complete. You know, the disciples are the disciples of John are comparing. And it bothers them. It com- it, it It bothers them that the disciples of Jesus are now rising to a more prominent place than they are because Jesus' ministry is increasing and theirs is decreasing. And as they're comparing, their comparison is stealing their joy. Their joy in being a follower of John and being a a, a disciple of John and being um, taught by him and being part of the kingdom of heaven. And they're saying, John, you are the one who pointed at him. You are the one who outed him. You are the one who said, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John, you're the one who baptized him. John, you deserve better. And so John's disciples were looking at how many followers John had, and they were basing um, their success on that. But what John was doing is he was looking at Jesus and how many followers Jesus had and based his success on that. You see that? John's disciples were looking at John and how many disciples he had, and based their joy on how many disciples John had. John looked at Jesus and said, I'm, I'm successful if Jesus is. John's saying, I'm not the groom. I'm the best man. And the best man cannot pursue the bride, cannot take the place of the groom. John's saying, it's not about me. And he takes this Old Testament picture of the messiah the coming christ the coming messiah who would be a bride groom to to his people who would be his bride and he says that's me i'm just i'm just there pointing and, and and helping the way for for the one who is to be preeminent that's the groom and he's come to 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 rescue his bride and i'm just there cheering him on and when when he's successful when jesus is is lifted up then i'm successful my joy is found in, in his success, not in my own. You see, if jealousy, if comparison, and the angst that comes from that entitlement that ensues are things that you get weighed down in, I'd, I'd encourage you even to read, uh, you can pick up a little booklet by Tim Keller called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. I read it this week, it's under 60 pages, it's really short. The freedom of self-forgetfulness. Because jealousy and comparison and the angst you're going to feel from entitlement that'll, that'll ensue if, if, if jealousy and comparison are, are robbing your joy, it, w- it will rob your joy. 
Comparison will steal the joy that you should have from realizing that everything you have is a gift. Right? If, if, if you realize that everything you have in your life is a gift, every good thing in your life is a gift, you can find joy in that. But if you're constantly comparing and saying, well, you know, my family's not as close as their family, or my business isn't as big as the, his business, or, or I, I'm not as rich as that person, you'll, that, the, the fact that these gifts that God has given you won't actually lead to joy. They'll actually, that comparison will actually steal the joy that God would intend in giving you those gifts. John's disciples are losing their joy. But for John, it was it, it, this actually, the same thing that cost his disciples joy was the very source of joy for John. He's saying, I'm, I've done what I'm supposed to do. I was supposed to prepare the way for the Messiah. He's come now and his, his, his ministry is expanding. The same situation, but opposite outcome, right? The disciples of John are losing their joy, but John is greatly rejoicing in it, he says. He says, in this, I, this joy is mine. He's saying, I greatly rejoice in the, the preeminence of Jesus. Third thing, then, John says, he must increase, I must decrease. He must become greater, I must become less, which really is the essence of Christian faith. See, it's so easy for the brand of our church to become more important to us than Jesus. It's so important for, it's, um, it's so easy for um, the success of our ministry to become more important to us than the fame and the discipling someone and you're there in your student you had them in Sunday school class and you met with them and and you found that actually they can now surpass you in their understanding and their ability to to teach and it's we should rejoice in that rejoice in that that we can work ourselves out of a job you know this this world would say you know push people down in order to elevate yourself but the kingdom of God says Elevate that person by getting down on your knee and, letting, and giving them a boost. Count Zinzendorf, I'm going to refer to him a lot tonight at our meeting. Count Zinzendorf said, preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. He said it 300 years ago. It's an irony, right? Preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. It's not about us. of Jesus is Jesus. Our desire is for people to know Jesus, to love Jesus. Our desire is for people to serve Jesus, to follow Jesus. And it's only when we're in that place that life will begin to make sense. So how did John know these three things? How did John know that entitlement and grace cannot coexist. How did John know that comparison would steal his joy? How did John know that he, Jesus must increase and he must decrease? How did John know these things? Well, he knew who, who he was. And he knew who he was. And he knew who Jesus was. See, entitlement, jealousy, comparison...
It's not just for leaders. This, this message is not just for Christian leaders, preachers, elders. If these things play out in their lives every day, convince them. That every time you struggle with feeling like you deserve better, that every time you, des- you struggle with comparing yourselves to others, you veiled, every time you veil the gospel, that you hide the gospel of Jesus in order that you would increase, you very need to ask for help. And the call of Jesus is to be to repent, to turn away from that, and to allow the transforming work of God's Holy Spirit to bring you to a new acknowledging the firstness of Jesus allows us to rejoice that he is second. And if you're second, he said, we need to be sure about who's first. And John had a vivid understanding of who Jesus is. He had a vivid understanding of who was first. He says in verse 31, the one who comes from above, he's referring to Jesus, is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. One who comes from heaven is above all. Jesus is above all. He, te- he testifies to what he has seen and heard up above in heaven. But no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. He's restating, John here is restating some of the things he said in the prologue in chapter 1, which we looked at in Advent in December. That, that Jesus is other than us, that Jesus is above us, that Jesus is from a different plane. He's from a different realm. He's, he's over and above us. He says, and when we, um, in 33, he says that the man who's accepted that, has certified, he is, literally says, has set his seal that God is true. That when we receive Jesus, we're sealing. It's like dripping the wax and putting the signet ring, which is signing the dotted line in this, in this culture. It's saying, God is true. That what Jesus has, has, has told us and taught us, because he's from above, he's from a higher realm. He has a, he has a greater vision. He knows what's true. He knows the meaning of life. He knows the, the way to life. He knows the way to truth. He knows the way of salvation. That, that what, when we receive him, when we accept that, when we, when we say yes to it, we're saying, yes, I, Kevin Bain, am putting my seal that God is true. He sets a seal that God is true. He's authorizing, saying, I believe it. Verse 34, for the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives the spirit without limit. The father loves the son and has placed everything in his hand. Some of the commentaries I read on this passage this week talked about um, a Jewish rabbi named Rabbi Ahab, which is a great name for a teacher, right? Aha! And, but Rabbi Ahab taught, the, as he taught in the Old, the Old Testament scriptures, he said that, that God's spirit in the Old Testament times was poured out on the prophets in the same measure of the work that they were sent for. That they received the measure of the Spirit that would allow them to accomplish the task that God sent them for. So, so they received just enough of the Holy Spirit to fulfill the call that God places on them, that God gives to them, the mandate that God gives to them. They received the Holy Spirit for that purpose, for that time, and in just the right measure in order to accomplish that call. But here John is saying, either John the Baptist or John the author, like I said, we're not sure who's actually saying this, but he's saying that Jesus has received the Spirit without measure, without limit. 
that he is, there's, he's saying Jesus is more than a prophet. Jesus is divine. He's God. That all things in this life, in this universe, are in his hands. This Jesus is ruling over all things. When we see that, we can rejoice in the fact that, oh, second, that Jesus has the Holy Spirit without measure. That Jesus is the ruler of all things. That he is preeminent. That he is first. When we're sure of that, when we're sure of the fact that it's Jesus who's first, we're free to say and rejoice in the fact that, listen, I am first. I am second because Jesus is Lord of all. John Piper on this passage says, Jesus is from God, is full of God, the Holy Spirit. Jesus is from God, is full of God, and speaks and rules as God. And we are from the earth, and we speak from the earth. And apart from him, we rule nothing. The point? As always, to reveal the glory of Jesus. And chapter 3 concludes with this verse, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Our culture struggles with verses like this. You know, it sounds so black and white. Sounds like there's only two roads. Sounds like there's life and there's death and no third way. Sounds that way because that's what it that's what it says. For God so loved the world, we saw this last week. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Paul the apostle writes the same thing in Romans ten when he says. That we are truth suppressors. That we are in, like I said last week, we're all born and we're in the judgment line. We're in the line of evaluation. And we'll be evaluated for how we've lived our life. We're all in the judgment line. And, what, and so we're under God's condemnation. We're under his wrath because none of us measure up. But Jesus didn't come. He wasn't sent in order to condemn the world. We already were condemned. But Jesus has come to save the world, to bring life, to bring rescue, to bring salvation. And he, so he comes and he takes us out of the line. He comes and takes us out of the line if we would believe in him, if we would receive him. It says here that, that God's wrath remains on men who do not believe, who reject the news of Jesus. God's wrath, don't, when, we, when we say the wrath of God, some, some of us think of an angry father with a belt. Think, some of us think of an, a cranky old guy. It's not the picture. The, the picture here of the wrath of God is, is settled opposition to Jesus. God's wrath is his settled. He's not, he's not cranky. He's not like doesn't have a temper that flares up. He's just settled in his opposition to us. He's a holy God. And in his holiness, he cannot coexist with sin. And so in conclusion, if we would work our way backwards through the text, that if we would reject God, God's gift of life, then we're, yes, under his wrath. But if we would receive Jesus, we're in his eternal life. And we're free then from the wrath of God and we're, 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 because Jesus has been sent from above, that he is Lord and that he is Savior and we are not, which frees us to say, I am a sinner because Jesus is first. Father in heaven, would you help us to believe that? Help us to receive this truth of the person of Jesus.
Help us, Lord, then, as we have this clear picture of the one who is first, of Jesus, who's preeminent and supreme, who's ruler of all. Lord, give us that picture of Jesus so that we would be free to, with great joy, say, it's not about me. I don't have to compare myself to others. I don't have to feel entitled. And we're, we're free to rejoice in the gifts you've given us. We're free to rejoice in your forgiveness. We're free to rejoice in your healing. We're free to rejoice in your provision. So give us that picture of Jesus so that we can with great joy, and we can actually find our joy in saying, I am not first, I am second. Lord, we need your spirit to, to do this. That's not, it's not natural to us. So, Father, pour out your spirit on us so we would see Jesus, so we would see Jesus as first, so we'd see Jesus as king, so we'd see Jesus as the one who is visible, the one who brings us life, the one who sets us free from judgment into a, a, an enjoyment of your life and your presence. So we pray this, Lord, in the awesome name of your Son, Jesus.